This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Early on, critics of the federal health care law used the term Obamacare often to disparage it. The former president later said he liked the name. In Colorado, critics coined the term Amy Care. That's a reference to Amy Stevens. She sponsored the bill in the state house that created Colorado's insurance exchange. And what might surprise you is that Stevens is a Republican. Today, with open enrollment around the corner and the future of the Affordable Care Act in question, Stephen joins us with the long view. Welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Doing well. You received a lot of blowback for your role in setting up what became Connect for Health Colorado, where about 200,000 Coloradans now shop for insurance. Do you remember the first time you heard someone refer to it as Amy Care? Yes, I do. Uh, And I think it was out of a meeting or a town meeting, and I was really kind of taken aback. And then I thought, well, now wait a minute. (laughs) You know, it was meant derisive, but actually you kind of had to laugh at it. Um, But it really showed a lack of understanding about what really was going on, right, at the time. Well, let's dig into that. You were House Majority Leader at Mm -hmm. the time. And why did you sponsor the bill? I think many today would wonder why a Republican from a pretty conservative part of the state would have not only voted for but sponsored the creation of a state exchange. Well, at that time, you have to understand, um, I was looking and sitting on a business committee that uh, you may remember Joe Rice, uh, who's now with Lockheed. Joe and I would hear over and over our health insurance rates were raising at 20 percent a year. This is another lawmaker, fellow lawmaker. lawmaker. And we said, gosh, what can we do? And we started looking into exchanges. But the issue was, is uh, Obamacare eclipsed all that. I'm not a supporter of Obamacare. It never was. But like anybody else, when you're handed something, you're either going to lead and make the best of it. And I come from a very conservative area, highly intellectual and high military, who are all leaders. People expect you to rise up and do something. And the business community came to me, health insurance came to me and said, we have to have an answer. Because, uh, just as a reminder, the Affordable Care Act said that states could create their own insurance marketplaces. And if they didn't, the federal government would essentially create one for you. Is that the fate that you were trying to avoid in Colorado, the the federal creation? Yes. Some of my colleagues actually forgot um, that we are the party of federalism. And as a federalist, I could could say nothing but states should own that and states should oversee it. And we have really smart people in Colorado. I really felt we could get there if we did a health exchange. Okay, you were worried about rates, you said. You were worried about coverage because the uninsured rate was pretty high back then, wasn't it? Yes, but um, but, but not just that. Uh, Listen, when we were passing things in Colorado that said, hey, we're going to cover colon cancer checks, we're going to cover this and that, Insurance rates were rising. And by the way, Colorado had some of the highest in terms of what we said we'd cover. And Obamacare even eclipsed that. So you have to understand, the more you say we're going to cover something, the more your rates are going to go up. Because prior to Obamacare, Colorado was passing its own mandates of what insurance had to cover. Uh, Mental health care, I think, was among those Mm -hmm. as well. And why then was an exchange 
the solution or a partial solution to the issues you saw coming down the horizon. It, it wasn't merely a way of sort of blocking federal creation of, a, of an exchange. No, no. But I thought creatively, I looked at what Utah had been doing for part-time employees. And I think a lot of us forget entrepreneurs, self-employed uh, people, not just a high, uh, you know, we already had covered Colorado for the very sick, but that was going to go broke. So we needed something creative. I wanted to see something very highly technical, almost like Travelocity or where you could take it into your hands and decide the kind of kind of health insurance you'd want. That, to me, was the goal. That is to cover those who didn't get uh, insurance through their employers. Yes, correct. Because they're their own employers. Right. Or perhaps they don't work full-time or something like that and that's get right. health benefits. That's right. And that's about 7% of the total population in the U.S. How was the exchange used against you, uh, whether it was running for re-election uh, the state legislature, or later you considered running for the U.S. Senate, right? That's correct. And and really, um, I think in part of uh, running for the U.S. Senate and really going to my own party was saying, you know, I didn't do the whole, hey, no Obamacare tattooed on my arm. There were people that actually had to make decisions, right, and be the adults in the room. And I considered that my job as a leader was to do that. However, uh, I think that my party owes everybody really an apology right now. Uh, We've had seven Your party, years. the Republican Party. Yeah, I do. I think they owe people an apology for seven years of blustering with no plan. And to actually say that, um, you know, we have a plan, um, I, I think it's it's important for all of us to say, where do we want to go with this? Where where do we want to be? Um, I applaud Hickenlooper and Kasich for working together. So let me say that the governors of Colorado and of Ohio, Kasich, a Republican Hickenlooper, a Democrat, uh, came together with a plan to stabilize the insurance markets. Right. I'd say that's not the only answer, but I think it's a good first start. Uh, it's a fair first start. Um, I wish the governor had perhaps come to some of our uh, our governor, uh, Hickenlooper, had come to perhaps some of our own Republicans to perhaps work on that. I didn't hear of that happening. But let's just put this aside for a moment. I think the reason that the exchange has stayed, despite every Republican effort to get rid of it, is because we've actually had a bipartisan board. Really good minds like Steve Erkenbrack, right? The, the board behind Connect for Health Colorado. Correct. And I think that despite everything, this thing is still moving forward. And I don't know where it's all going to go. Did it turn out as I totally wanted? Not so sure, Ren. I mean, not, not, uh, I think uh, we've had some ups and downs there. But I would say are right now, are we covering as many as we can? Well, I think we can do better, but I want to see what comes out of D.C. And I think a lot of what comes out of D.C. is going to go back to the states. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, open enrollment on the state's health care exchange begins in just about a month. And we're getting the long view on Obamacare from Amy Stevens. She's a former Republican lawmaker, and she co-sponsored a bill to create the state's exchange. She's a Republican, so that may come as a surprise to those who weren't around at that time. But uh, do you think that it hurt your political chances, being, as you say, the adult in the room? Well, no, I I actually think it's about uh, more people understanding what was going on at the time. And at that time, there were a lot of loud voices. Now, my district 
actually understood. Someone was there to primary me, so saying. You, you represent monuments in the Colorado yes, Springs area, Black El Forest, Paso very, County. very conservative northern uh, Colorado, northern Colorado Springs. And my district, not only were my favorables very high, my district said that you rose up and led, and you did what you had to do. And my district voted me in by a sixty percent margin. Right, you re- won re-election. Yes, I did. I think it was slightly redrawn. But I did. It was the same district. Uh, Okay. You started this conversation by saying that you're no fan of Obamacare. What has it done well and what has it failed to do? Hmm. Well, if you look at the recent uh, Colorado Health Institute uh, report on access, we have more people insured, but they're not insured through the exchange. We have more people on Medicaid. And Medicaid, at the end of the day, Ryan, I believe we really are going to have to adjust and look at its long-term health because all of us are supporting it. And and I had a when I ran the exchange, I had a survey done or a look at what would the what would Medicaid's plan be if we had to compare it to silver or gold plan or whatever. These are the levels of plans you can buy on the exchange that has to do with what benefits you get. Correct. And they're a platinum. They're a big plan. They cover a lot. You think that uh, Medicaid is overly generous? Uh, I do in many aspects, but I would point us to where Mitch Daniels, uh, former governor of Indiana, and where Mike Pence, who's now VP, I would point to where some of their um, reformation, so to speak, for uh, Medicaid went. Um, And I think there are some things we can learn from it. Give me an example of how you'd change Medicaid. Yes. Uh, I actually like the idea that both Pence and uh, Daniels set up a fund, uh, almost like a stipend for people to be able to pay for some of their own care. You can't move people from a benefit if they don't actually understand what it is they're paying for and that you others are paying for health care. We all are paying in one way or another. I thought their, their program was very interesting in that you had an account with which you actually were given a certain amount of money. I think it was 2000 And so you could pay for services. You felt some proximity, some closeness to the transaction. Correct. Uh-huh. Uh, so you're not pleased with the growth in Medicaid and in, in what it offers. What has Obamacare done well, do you think? Hmm. Well, I'm not a fan of Obamacare, but I think the one thing I would say is that there are certain uh, probably your primary care doctor visits um, that are covered uh, at a greater degree. Um, I'm not sure uh, in terms of um, all the all the explicitness of that, but I do think that that helps people in a visit a year be able to 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 actually have interaction with their GP and actually get something done uh, that they can go further. So I liked that part. Your annual physical, yes, is covered. your annual physical, I think is good. Can you relate to Republican U.S. senators like Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Arizona's John McCain, who also went against the GOP plan to scuttle the effort to repeal and replace Obamacare? I wonder if you feel some simpatico there. Um, I think really at the end of the day, it's vote your district or someone else will vote it for you. And so you have to really look at how something is going to affect your district. And I can certainly understand uh, some of them rising up. McCain, uh, not as sure. I I just I'm (laughs) McCain's all over the place. So I'm not really sure about all that. But I, I perhaps can understand what I think, however, is more critical is that this group couldn't work as a team and get something done. And frankly, no matter who's at the table, who's ever in charge, you've got to be able to work to get something done. 
and and that's not happening. To what extent do you think the uh, desire and the the rush in Congress to repeal and replace Obamacare has to do with the fact that it, the law is now in some ways synonymous with the former president? Mm. I think everybody campaigned on this, and and that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I would have too. Except I think you actually have to have a plan at the table people agree on. Yeah, and you had seven years to get that done, by the way. I suppose the, the, some would say there were there were plans. There were plans in the House. There was a plan in the Senate. But but uh, you added that, but that they agree on, yes. which has not been the case so right. far. There were representatives in Congress like Chris Collins of New York, Thomas Garrett of Virginia, who admitted they'd never read all of the health care bill that passed in the House last spring. Senator Lindsey Graham, who sponsored the most recent bill to repeal Obamacare, told reporters, I thought everybody else knew what the heck they were talking about, but apparently not, adding that he assumed these really smart people will figure it out. Well, I I think that's lazy. And to be honest with you, I think uh, we're past that time now. Uh, There's a group called uh, Independent Women's uh, Forum that I thought had a very good idea about building the bridge out of Obamacare. And I think this comes in sections of Obamacare. You and I just talked about Medicaid, okay? Section in and of itself, right? This is what Hick and Luper and Kasich were saying. Yes. Th- their plan was not a full repeal and replace. It was about stabilizing one aspect, which was uh, insurance yes. on the individual market. I agree. And I think you can do each part and do it well. And I, you know, I think that's where we have to have good thinking. And I think it's where we have to have ideas. And what concerns me about my party and concerns me about uh, the, the other party is the death of free thinking. Because God forbid, if you think outside the box, or you think, you know, years ago, how, what about an exchange? Why don't we think about that? Should everybody be in the insurance pool or not? Are we going to cover pre-existing? What would that look like? The president uh, has talked about letting Obamacare implode. Mm-hmm. And there are signs that the government is not placing a big emphasis on open enrollment this year. It looks like they may reduce the ad budget for it, uh, sort of reducing its prominence. And, you know, Republicans have voted to uh, defund the risk corridors, Mm -hmm. which were a way of stabilizing insurance markets. There's been a lot of instability around cost sharing reductions. So these are payments to insurance companies to help uh, defray the costs of covering low income people. Is it possible that the end of Obamacare comes not through, you know, a legislative signature, but by letting it implode, as the president has said? You could let it implode, but I I think at the end of the day, uh, cancer doesn't know whether you're Republican or Democratic. I mean, we have people, these are very real issues, and I think we need to take them very seriously. And if we'd like it to implode, then just let's understand um, there will be a byproduct of that. And is that uh, byproduct perhaps bipartisanship? Like, I, I don't know, from from the ashes yeah, rises could the be. phoenix? I don't know. I could. I mean, I think uh, K- I think governors Kasich and Hickenlooper have said, friends, we've got to do something right now. And here's what we're offering. Now, like it or not, every state's free to do what they want. You and I live in a state that's very, very purple, if not towards blue, right? Red states, okay. You know, uh, Kasich may have maybe an easier time. I don't know. But the fact is someone put something on the table and said, let's rally and see what we can do around this. Great. I'd love to see more of that. Amy, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. She served eight years, Amy Stevens did, as a state representative for Monument 
In 2011, she sponsored the bill to create Colorado's health care exchange. She's now a principal at the Denton's Law Firm, where she leads the Colorado government affairs practice. And again, open enrollment on the state's exchange begins November 1st. Amber Cantorna never thought she'd become an LGBT advocate. A decade ago, she says she was ensconced in what she calls her Christian bubble. Her father is an executive with Focus on the Family. That's the conservative Christian group dedicated to, quote, helping families thrive and to healthy marriages that reflect God's design. But her life changed when she realized she was gay. Cantorna's new book is Refocusing My Family, Coming Out, Being Cast Out, and Discovering the True Love of God. And welcome to the program, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. So Focus on the Family is marking its 40th anniversary this year, and uh, it's an important part of millions of people's lives. The organization, led for many years by James Dobson, has been a prominent voice on issues like abortion, adoption, religious freedom. As you wrestled with your sexuality, you wondered at one point if you were one of God's mistakes. What what in the focus on the family message led you to to wonder that? Well, you know, growing up in that Christian bubble, you're kind of taught that God's design is the purity culture, which was a huge part of what I grew up in. The you true wore a ways. purity ring. Yes, I wore a purity ring. I had the purity ceremony. I read, you know, True Love Waits and Joshua Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And that was such a huge part of my upbringing. You were just taught that saving yourself for marriage and not having sex before marriage was the only route kind of that was expected. And especially coming from a focus on the family family with a dad that worked there for such a long time in such a prominent position, that was, I was kind of expected to be the role model in that area. And so wrestling with my sexuality was certainly something I never dreamed of, of having to experience and face. I mean, I suppose there are two issues here. There's the saving yourself until marriage, but I'm, I'm guessing that focus makes it quite clear that the marriage you're saving yourself for is between a man and a woman. Correct. Absolutely. And so I kind of was under this belief and assumption that you just save yourself and your knight in shining armor will someday come down the road and you will get married and live happily ever after. And so it never really dawned on me at an earlier age that there was something else underlying because I was just taught to believe this and follow this road. And so I really had no exposure to LGBT people or people with different sexual orientations or gender identities for me to even be able to wrestle through some of those questions earlier on in life. Are there values you learned from your family and through focus on the family that are still a part of you, though? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think family values as a whole are still a huge part of my life. What does that mean? My family was very good at traditions and making the holidays special. And my parents were very good at always being present for us as kids growing up. I was homeschooled all the way K through 12. And so my parents were always part of our recitals and our programs, and they were always very present in our lives. And those are things that I still value today, even though a lot of those values as far as what my family looks like has changed because now I'm married to a woman. I still value those same family traits of putting family first and making holidays special and those kind of things that I was taught growing up as well. So I'm just going to read a quote from James Dobson that you use in the book. We are obligated as Christians to treat homosexuals respectfully and with dignity. But we are also to oppose with all vigor the radical changes they hope to impose on the nation. It is vitally important that we do so. 
It's against the backdrop there of Dobson's words. Mm -hmm. We are obligated as Christians to treat homosexuals respectfully and with dignity. Mm -hmm. That I'd like to talk about your own experience with your family. Sure. So the day you came out to them, you wore a bracelet with an inscription. I did. What did it say? It said... It is well with my soul. Thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul. And that was something that carried me through because I really didn't know when I came out what the reaction was going to be. I knew it wasn't going to be good. This was obviously not what I was taught to be God's design. And so I knew it was going to be harsh, but I didn't realize and I don't think I was prepared for how harsh the reaction was going to be. How harsh? In other words, the reaction was not respectful or with dignity, do you think? Uh, I would say not initially there. I mean, and not just initially all the way through, but initially when I did tell them, uh, my dad just looked at me and he said, I have nothing to say to you right now. And he got up and walked out. And it was three weeks before we even spoke again. And when we did, it was I was hopeful that they would have had some time to process and kind of come from a more loving approach. But they were still coming from a very um angry and hurt place. And so they compared me to murderers and pedophiles and bestiality and really believed that I had turned my back on God and everything they had ever taught me. You don't name your father in the book. He's an executive at Focus on the Family. Um, Why not? And do you think that people won't figure it out? (laughs) Oh, I think people will figure it out. Um, It's not hard. But for me personally, my point in writing the book was not to be vindictive. It wasn't to tear focus apart or tear my family apart. But instead, it was to shed light on the harm that this bad theology is is creating in families across the nation, not just in my family, but because of this theology that says you, you can't be gay and Christian. It's tearing families apart. It's having people that commit suicide. It's taking lives. And so it's really doing the opposite of what Focus is claiming to do by bringing families together. What do you mean when you say it's taking lives? The suicide rate for people who are LGBT that come from rejecting families is 32 times higher than the average LGBT or the average straight teen. So it is just astronomical. And they're already at such a higher rate of suicide attempts just because they're LGBT, but if they come from a rejecting family, that just shoots off the charts. And being so close to suicide myself is something that has made me very passionate in sharing this story. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Amber Cantorna of Denver about her new book, Refocusing My Family. It's about her coming out experience to her family. Uh, which was connected, uh, remains connected to this day, to focus on the family, the conservative Christian group in Colorado Springs. Her father's an executive there. You said that you came out to your family and there was a, a real period of, of sort of icy silence for about three weeks. And I'd like to have you read a passage from the book. And this comes after you've told your family you were gay and uh, they've decided that they're ready to talk to you once again after about this three-week period. Sure. So This is after we had this very difficult conversation where they had compared me to murderers, to pedophiles, and just said that I, you know, they didn't know what the family was going to look like going forward. They didn't know what holidays were going to look like. And so at the end of this conversation is where this excerpt comes through. Finally, after I'd been thoroughly reprimanded and ostracized, the conversation wrapped up. But as I went to leave, there was one final jab to my heart that made all of this very real. As I went to walk out the door, my dad asked for the key to their house back. The childhood home that I'd grown up in from the age of seven, the door that had always been open to me to come by whenever I needed was now locked, and I was left out in the cold. I was now an outsider, no longer welcome as part of the family. 
He said they no longer trusted me to have open access to their home. Baffled, I removed the key from my keychain and handed it to them. I think he tried to soften the blow by saying, I love you, before closing the door, but I don't remember for sure. All I could feel was the hurt, the pain, and the rejection from those I cared about the most. I never expected my parents to be accepting or approve of the fact that I was gay, but for the first time in my adult life, I took the risk of completely trusting in their love for me as parents, yet was met with rejection. In my hour of greatest need, my family abandoned me. Arriving home, I opened my journal and in utter heartbreak wrote ten of the most painful words of my life. My worst fear has come true. I've become an orphan. That's from a chapter I think called Orphan Amber. Given the religious tenets of the church, why why did you think your family would accept you in any capacity as a gay woman? I think I was just hopeful. I, I knew that this was not something that they would be fond of or accepting of based on what I was taught growing up. But I think I was hopeful that somehow we could get to this place of agreeing to disagree. And yet that just never happened. To them, in their eyes, agreeing to disagree was the same as condoning my behavior. And that was something they refused to do. Uh, how long has it been since you've talked to them? It's been four years. Four years. How is that? It's hard. You know, it's it's hard. On one hand, it's I don't have that constant emotional roller coaster. And that's part of, you know, why we ended up kind of breaking ties the way we did is just because it was so toxic and hard for, I think, all of us to continue to go on this roller coaster ride together where we weren't, but we weren't getting anywhere. And so on that hand, I think it's given me some space to breathe and to heal, but it still is hard. You know, it's hard around holidays. It's hard um, around some of the family traditions that we used to have growing up. It's hard that they've never met my wife and seen the, you know, the home that we've created together. Do they know you're married? Yes, they know I'm married. Mm -hmm. You tried to build a bridge uh, several times. Yes, I tried for a good two years or so to build that bridge. And I think at that point, I was so I, desperate for their love. I so wanted them to approve of me. I wanted that. I wanted to prove to them that I was still the same daughter I had always been and that I hadn't changed and that we could still carry on this relationship without anything really needing to change in the relationship between us. But they were not in a place to be able to do that. You said earlier um, you thought that they might just agree to disagree with mm-hmm. you. Is that is that in some ways the most you can hope for when religious beliefs are tightly held? And would you want a life in which you simply agreed to disagree? You know, I wouldn't now. At the time, I was still very much wanting to to maintain that relationship. But with where I am now and as far as I have come, that's not good enough for me anymore. Uh, they would really have to embrace all of who I am and embrace my wife and our family and really be working to try and get to a place where they could understand and grow and learn about a God that is so much more diverse than what they currently know in order for us to really have an authentic relationship. I felt like I grew up wearing a facade my whole life, and I just am at the point now where I, that's it's not something I'm willing to do any longer. When I think about what you just said there, it's that you have a, a sense of God, God as you know him, your family has, or, or her, um, or they or them, mm-hmm. uh, and your family has a sense of what God is. Uh, is it possible that neither of you know? In other words, is it fruitless to try to square your versions of God? 
They're both sort of human creations, aren't they? Correct. And I, But I think what I grew up in, in the view of God that my parents are still seeing, is very much fear-based. There's a lot based on appearances. There's a lot based on the fear of going to hell. And in fact, when they kind of pushed me out of the family, I think it was a lot because they were not only in fear for my soul, but for their soul as well. And so they... they Merely to be associated with you. Correct. Or to to say that they would associate or approve of what I was doing could put their own soul in jeopardy. And that was just, they said, you know, if they had to choose between God and me, they would choose God. Where does this impasse uh, in other relationships uh, get healed? Have Have you seen... Other instances of families coming together. Absolutely. Um, I have seen are, uh, other families that, but some of them have taken 10, 15 years to let, get to that point. Let me say that you founded a nonprofit called Beyond, which works with LGBTQ people from conservative faith-based communities. Correct. Okay, so time is one element. What else? What else breaks this logjam? I think a lot of times it comes down to them having somebody that they know that comes out. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case for my family, but for many families, it is. A lot of times it's this kind of hot political topic until it's their brother or their daughter or their son. And then they're forced to kind of face that. And so I know, like from my own family and a lot of my friends, they had never been forced to face that before until I came out. And then that kind of threw them for that loop. And some families are willing to journey on that because they would never disown their child. And some of them feel so... um so connected to their faith and what they believe God has demanded of them and required that they they end up splitting from their family instead. Do you think that your father's colleagues at Focus on the Family know that he hasn't spoken to his daughter in four years? I really don't know. Uh-huh. I, I really don't know what they tell people about me or even if they tell people they have a daughter anymore. I, I really don't know. At one point, you considered c- committing suicide. I did. But you didn't go through with it. What what prevented you from doing it? Really, the community of support that I ended up finding here in Denver through connecting with Highlands Church is what saved my life. And in fact, I had started connecting with them previous to coming out. And then once I did come out and things went so poorly, I ended up just going ahead and moving to Denver because I knew that was my lifeline. Having people that embraced me, embraced my faith, embraced who I was, and being able to nurture me in a healthy direction is really what saved my life. This is an affirming church in Denver. An affirming Denver, church in Denver. A, a, a Christian church. Um, it, it's also where I think you met your wife. It sure is. Uh-huh. It sure is. And it's tell, really, tell us that story. We met um, during commu- what they call community hours, kind of like a time of meeting and socializing before um, the actual church service where you get to connect with others. And I was actually sharing my life story that day, telling my story, and she had happened to be there, and that was the day that we met. And so it uh, really was just a beautiful story, and we ended up dating not long after that, and wasn't real long before we knew we were meant for each other. This is Clara? Clara. Yeah. You write, many people believe the myth that people choose to be gay. I can guarantee, quoting you, that given the chance, no one in their right mind would ever choose to be gay. Correct. Do you, do you, do you stand by that? I do, because people who are gay have gone through so much. They face so much as far as rejection from family, discrimination in the workplace, 
being limited in how safe you feel out in public showing PDA. Those are things that my wife and I still face all the time. And so that's not something people are going to voluntarily choose to do and be a part of, you know. I see your point there that that you're saying people don't choose to be gay. But that that second part, which is, and, you know, if given the choice, I wouldn't have chosen this. Is there some shame in that? I wouldn't say that. I think I wouldn't say that given the choice. I mean, I I love my life now and I would never go back to the life that I had before. And yes, be, being gay has definitely created challenges that I never would have expected to have faced. But I also think it forced me into a path of freedom that I may not have otherwise found. And I, you know, I was so tired of living the facade my whole life. But I think being gay and being forced in that direction helped break that box open. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. If you saw your family's number on your caller ID, do you think you'd pick up the phone? I think I'd give it some time. I think I would see kind of where their heart is at and where they're coming from. And I am open to having that conversation with them. But I would like to see some true effort of them really, because I haven't seen any of that up until now. Will the book make it harder? It may. In fact, when I was getting ready to write the book, somebody told me, you know, writing this book may cut off any chances that you ever have of speaking to your family again. But I said, you know, I don't know if I have that chance anyways. And I feel an obligation to share my story to help other people not make the same mistakes. And there's people dying in the closet and committing suicide all in the meantime. I can't wait 10 years to see if my family comes around or not. I need to share this story now and help other families that are going through similar things. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Amber Cantorna of Denver is author of Refocusing My Family, Coming Out, Being Cast Out, and Discovering the True Love of God. She's also the founder of Beyond, which works with LGBTQ people in conservative faith-based communities who want to come out. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Tamarisk is an extremely unpopular shrub in Colorado. It's invasive and grows along waterways, makes it tough to access rivers, blocks views. It has also created a lot of problems for other plants and wildlife. And it has proven to be one of the toughest plant pests to eradicate. New research reveals that efforts to get rid of tamarisk, including an introduced beetle, have had some unintended consequences. Tamarisk expert Anna Scher sits down with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Tamarisk was brought to the U.S. in the 1800s. It was to stop erosion. It was also used by ranchers to block out the wind and as a garden plant. What is it about tamarisk that makes it so destructive? Tamarisk alters ecosystems in a number of different ways. The first way is the fact that it does grow like a shrub, but a huge shrub. It can be many meters tall. And so as a very dense understory, it makes it difficult for wildlife to move through there and for any light to get through for any plants that might grow in the understory. So that's the first way. But it also affects soil chemistry. It can make the soils very salty. And it also uses up water, um, although that has been exaggerated in the past. We now know that's less of an effect. But for many, the most important effect that it has is an elevating wildfire risk. Oh, wow. Okay. And in terms of the salt, uh, that's, what's the problem with that? 
So many plants that grow in the Southwest are adapted to salty soil to some extent. But tamarisk grows along rivers where historically we would have overbank flooding to flush those salts out. So tamarisk is able to take up salty water in its tissues, and then because it's a deciduous tree, it drops the leaves that have salt accumulated on them, making the surface of the soil much more salty. And plants that historically have grown along our rivers can't tolerate that level of salt. And why fire danger? Tamarisk, because of its growth form, drops a lot of twigs and leaves, and without that overbank flooding to flush all of that out, we basically have a lot of tinder. And so any kind of fire ends up being a much bigger and what we would say hotter fire than historically would occur along rivers in the southwest. And Imported beetles were turned loose on tamarisk in the early 2000s. They were expected to eat the plants so native plants could return. How's that worked? Well, it's really interesting. It's way too soon to tell long-term what's going to happen with our plant communities along rivers. But this is the focus of the research that happens in my lab. And what we found is that directly proportional to the amount that the beetle is able to defoliate the tree, we have the recovery of native plants in the understory. So the beetle, both the adult beetle and the larvae, what look like caterpillars, eat the leaves. The tree responds by dropping leaves, and that lets light come through. Hmm. And that's an important limiting resource for plants trying to grow below the tamarisk. And you call um, the plant sometimes the tamarisks as opposed to the tamarisk. What's yes. the difference? Uh, the tamarisks with an X is the scientific name. That's the genus. And tamarisk is one of a couple different common names. It's also referred to as salt cedar. And we should say tamarisk is most prevalent in the southwestern U.S., but one big problem is the beetles have spread to a much wider area of the southwest than was planned. Uh, And that could become an issue for an endangered bird species called the southwestern willow flycatcher. They like to nest in the tamarisk. I understand that's led to a legal battle. What's that about? Yeah, so in 2010, the Center for Biological Diversity and the Maricopa Audubon Society filed a lawsuit against the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, referred to as APHIS, which is a department of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, because they feared the impact of the beetle, which was released by APHIS, on this endangered bird. Now, of the five violations that were listed in the lawsuit, the judge ruled just this last August in favor of the Center for Biological Diversity on one of them. Okay, And the one it ruled on was that the APHIS didn't mitigate the impacts of the beetle. They released the beetle, and then they just really dropped the ball. Well, so does that mean that um, because of this nesting issue, it might be tougher to use beetles to get rid of tamarisk? Well, the the beetles are here to stay. We're we're not going to uh, get rid of the beetles. But the issue is that we need to 
do more good science on tracking the beetle movements and restoring habitat so that not only the southwestern willow flycatcher, but other organisms that require trees have habitat. And we're really, in the scientific community, looking closely at APHIS now to see how it's going to respond to this ruling with hopes that they will put resources towards those experts in the field, those of us who have been working on this for decades now, to do the good work that's needed to ensure the survival of the southwestern willow flycatcher and that entire ecosystem. So if some birds use the tam- use tamarisk to nest, that means you're not trying to get rid of all tamarisk, is that right? Correct. And it's not reasonable really in any biocontrol situation to think that you're going to eradicate the target invasive species. What we're anticipating is that over the next few decades, we would see a normalization eventually where populations of the host, that is the invasive tamarisk and the beetle, come to some happy medium such that the tamarisk isn't acting invasively. It can be a benign element in the ecosystem. It doesn't have to be causing all the problems that it is now. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Anna Scher about the invasive shrub called tamarisk. She's editor of the book Tamarisks, A Case Study of Ecological Change in the American West. Besides using beetles, are there other ways to get rid of tamarisk? You could chop it down maybe, use pesticides? Yes to both. In integrated pest management, we talk about three general categories of taking care of an invasive species. Biological, the beetle being an example of that. Chemical, meaning pesticides, or in this case, herbicides. And mechanical, where you're going in with chainsaws or heavy machinery that can rip it out. But one thing that's important to know about tamarisk is that its growing tissues are primarily under the soil surface. So if you just go in and mow it down or cut it down, it's going to grow back without the use of herbicide. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why biological controls are so advantageous, is that you don't have to go in and disturb the ecosystem as much as you would if you were using herbicides or using heavy machinery. So tamarisk spreads along waterways and it chokes out native willows, cottonwoods, By getting rid of them, um, how successful have you been? You said some of them are coming back, but at bringing back native plants. Yes, we're in fact publishing a paper right now in ecological engineering that shows that by removing the tamarisk, either by biological control alone or in combination with these other methods, we do see a recovery of the native plant community. But an important thing to notice is that in many cases, we're seeing the recovery of more what we call xeric or drought-adapted plants. We're not seeing a return to the old cottonwood willow forest simply because there isn't the water available to do that. And so people who are restoring these ecosystems need to understand what the end point, what the realistic outcome is going to be. When the federal government decided to get on board with tamarisk removal, um, one of the reasons uh, was that the shrub was sucking up large amounts of water from rivers. And you alluded to this earlier. Are removal efforts helping with that at all? Not really. Um, It turned out that the 
impetus to remove tamarisk to recover water was really a red herring, that the early methodologies to calculate the amount of water that this tree used were not correct and overestimated dramatically how much water these trees use. And maybe more importantly, what subsequent research has shown is that native trees, cottonwoods and willows, can use as much, if not more, water than tamarisk. And so in places where we do hope to restore that kind of ecosystem, we don't want people talking about water because we know that if the replacement vegetation are these other big water users, we're definitely not going to get what we call water salvage. So it sounds like, just to wrap up, once tamarisk is removed, it leaves behind some other problems. Um, and do you need to change the way you replace plants along these waterways? There definitely needs to be increased work on restoration, prioritization of the sites, which is really one of the outcomes of this ruling in August, is that there are best practices available for restoring native ecosystems. Anna, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Anna Scher is a University of Denver biology professor and a top tamarisk expert. She spoke to my colleague Andrea Dukakis about efforts to get rid of the destructive shrub. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The number of boys playing high school football has dropped in the past few years. A professor at CU Boulder says it could be a trend. CPR health reporter John Daly spoke with Roger Pelkey. Pelkey directs CU's Sports Governance Center. He published an analysis of the numbers and investigated whether health risks and concussions drive this. You study data collected by the National Federation of State High School Associations and the U.S. Census. And you looked at the football participation rate of eligible boys. What did you find? The data on participation, just the numbers, shows that there there is a decline. And the number of boys participating in football has declined steadily from 2008, after two decades of, of increasing. It's declined by about 50,000 boys over 2008 to, to 2016. Half of that decrease occurred just in 2015 to 2016. What about other sports? Is high school sports participation down in general? No, I, I think um, it's safe to say that the participation of high school kids, boys and girls, in sports is going up. That's what the data shows. And last year, just to take an example, the only declines that we saw last year were in football, wrestling, and golf. All other sports saw uh, an increase. And now we should note this analysis was commissioned by the International Sports Governance Consortium, Play the Game. However, this project seems to have had a personal beginning for you. There wasn't enough interest at your son's school to form a team. So you analyze various data and studies. What's your hypothesis? If you take a look at media reports in regions across the U.S., there are a number of instances of schools unable to field teams or JV teams, including here in Colorado. And there's also evidence at the state level of declines. And coaches are attributing 
in many of those instances, those declines to parental concerns about the risks of football. You note two key instances where the risks of playing football caught national attention, the suicide death of a former NFL player, Junior Seau, and the Will Smith movie, Concussion, about the discovery of the brain condition CTE in former players. How possible is it that growing awareness is driving the drop in young football players? What we're looking at here is really an inflection point, and we're, we're right up against it. We're just, you know, it's, it, it's, it's occurring now. And I think it offers an opportunity for us to talk about football in the United States, health risk, what we want it to be, because two decades of increase in participation has turned around. And that turnaround seems, seems real, at least for now. Your online piece has a provocative title. It asks, has the United States reached peak football? I think maybe we've reached peak football, but you know that's that's not saying too much since, as I say in the piece, you know the NFL has 1,800 players and high school sports has more than a million. So we could see a long long time decline in participation without really much obvious consequence for the NCAA or the NFL. That said, if if the rates of decline accelerate from here, things could be perceived very differently. That was CPR health reporter John Daly speaking with Roger Pelkey, who directs the Sports Governance Center at CU Boulder. Subscribe to the Colorado Matters podcast through your favorite podcast service, including iTunes. We're also on NPR One. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.